tonight on Arena. Tom Hanks in A Man Called Otto and Olivia Coleman in Empire of Light are among the movies up for review and Guy Barker on his upcoming gig with the RTE Concert Orchestra. Five one double five one is the text you can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Well, a veritable bumper edition of film reviews for you this evening. A Man Called Otto, a feel-good movie starring Tom Hanks in grumpy old man mode. Till, the story of the lynching of an American teenager in 1950s America. Empire of Light, a letter, love letter to cinema from Sam Mendes and it is set in and around an Art Deco movie theatre in Margate. The Pale Blue Eye is an atmospheric gothic whodunit starring Christian Bale and a man who's been on this programme several times, Timothy Spall. And then we have the Spanish entry for this year's Oscars, Alcaraz, telling the story of what happens to a Catalan family when the land they've been farming is to be sold. With me to discuss this week's films are Ruth Barton and John Maguire. Good evening and Happy New Year to both of you. Yeah, first yeah, first year. Film reviews of, um, of 2023. We will start with Empire of Light from director Sam Mendes, set in an English coastal town in the 19th it is, uh, stars Olivia Coleman. What English film doesn't star Olivia <laughs> Coleman at the moment? As the manager, she isn't the manager. She she works in this uh, fading du- empire. Duty manager. She's the duty manager in this fading empire cinema. Um, tell us about the empire cinema in Margate, John. It's not a very, um, I suppose, exotic no, location, it's not. is it? It's two screens. Uh, it's pretty shabby, pretty rundown. Once upon a time, though, it was an entertainment palace. It had a ballroom. It had a restaurant. It had many more screens in the kind of locked off upstairs area which is now Mm. home to pigeons and broken glass and broken dreams and all the rest of it we're getting into dodgy territory here with (laughs) this this, I'm sorry to say (laughs) Sean Uh, and it's a cap for Mendes he's done some of the biggest films of his career Skyfall uh, Spectre 1917 and this is much more modestly scaled and like we say it's the sh- within the shabby halls of the cinema in Margate in the early 1980s and all of these details are important and at the same time they're not important at all. In some ways you know when I saw the setup for this I thought this is Cinema Paradiso but it's set in Margate which ain't quite, ain't well, quite where you want to. Isn't that what you dream of? <laughs> uh, yeah so no absolutely as John says it's, it is this you know, it's a sort of love letter to the movies and it's clearly Sam Mendes' own mm. uh, reminiscences about growing up and going to the cinema and of course like so many filmmakers who make films that are faintly autobiographical their identity is formed or their imagination is formed by the movies so it, it is it, actually if it had just been that it probably would have been Cinema Paradiso in Margate but unfortunately f- for us he decides to throw in some sort of British social realism so he has to have issues capital I issues so Olivia Coleman is not just the um, duty manager of the cinema Mm. she's recovering from a breakdown she's addicted to lithium and she's just hanging on to her sanity by a very thin thread and and enter into this mix-up of sort of bumbling along kind of you know English types comes this new young black man uh, Stephen played by Michael Ward and Everything then gets turned upside down by him. He's charming. Uh, they start a relationship, which is, she's much older than him. Mm. And at the beginning, in this abandoned loft, he finds a pigeon with a broken wing, which he fixes. Cue very, Clang. very heavy <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm getting God spare us from the magic of cinema, Sean. Oh, God spare us from these things. All right. This Valentine's to 
cinema and all the rest of it. Ah, no. No, no it's, it's, no, the first, it's the first Thursday. Hold on, before you go off on another rant, oh. let me play a little clip uh, to let the people hear what it sounds like when you're curing a broken pigeon, a pigeon's broken wing. No, this is a scene featuring uh, Olivia Coleman as Hilary and Stephen, the character played by Michael Ward. There's been a uh, an incident in the cinema and they're sitting in the lobby and she needs a little bit of TLC and reassurance. Did I humiliate myself? What? Tell me, did I? No, it wasn't humiliating. It was just intense. To be honest, I thought you were a bit of a hero. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Hard to believe. My dad used to take me fishing when I was little. We never caught any fish. And for years I just thought he was a bad fisherman. And then I realised it was something else, something quite simple. He didn't know where the fish were. And he was too ashamed to ask. He was just ashamed. Shame is not a healthy condition. Shame is not a healthy condition, says Olivia Coleman there as Hillary. And she's speaking to the character of Stephen, uh, played by Michael Ward in Empire of Light, new, new film from Sam Mendes. Now, I know you want to get back to mm. absolutely destroy the pigeon's <laughs> other wing, John, but before you get to the pigeon's other wing, that chemistry, I, we were talking as we were listening to the clip, yeah. the chemistry between the two of them is great. I saw them on with Graham Norton, I think it was last weekend, I can't remember. Yeah, they get on great together. And they just, they, 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 the chemistry on the television screen off the two of them was amazing. Is that there in the film? That, absolutely it is. And Coleman is a superb actress. I mean, there's very few among her peers working in the UK at the moment that can touch her. And this young man, Michael Ward, who I haven't seen very much of. I saw him in uh, the Steve McQueen Lover's Rock. Uh, and he's got this extraordinary presence. He's devastatingly handsome, first of all. Uh, but he has this great calmness and presence about him. And he's playing a really interesting character of that time in the early 1980s. Mm. He's a rude boy. He's into ska and he's into two-tone and he's into this kind of subculture that was emerging in the UK at the time where black and white musicians were coming together. Uh, and, and that was a really interesting movement. So he's got all the style. He's got, you know, he's pin sharp there's and a they, huge butt coming they, here the film is nothing but butts I'm f- sorry to say Sean because when you when you have Mendes who's written his own script for the first time mm. and he's a, a director a filmmaker an extremely talented filmmaker but he's really good at creating visual shorthands in which to create some to tell his message and he can't do that here all he has eventually is the flickering reflective light from the silver screen, Mm. which we know is coming. So up to that point, he has to work with actors who have to act and to to explain what they're doing, to develop a plot, to tell a story. And that's where the film falls down. I mean, it's nothing to do with the acting. It's nothing to do with the production design or the cinematography from Roger Deakins, which is exemplary in both cases, absolutely exemplary. It has everything to do with the fact that he can't shoehorn these messages into the the characters that he has working in front of the camera. It it struck me, even listening to that clip, and as I say, I haven't seen the film, but I'm basing it on on the interview I saw, it it, it reminded me, in a a small way, of Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, the Emma Thompson, Daryl McCormack film that was out last year as well. Um, should he, should Sam Mendes just have stuck with the love story here oh, between so, yeah. the two staff members? Yeah, and I mean, also, there are some lovely little cameos. Toby Jones, who I'm really fond of as He's all over the film reviews this oh, week. I just love Toby <laughs> yeah. Jones because he's so good in, in The Detectorist, that, that mm. BBC series about the metal detectors. 
detectors. Um, and he had, there's a lovely sequence with him up in the projection booth. He's the projectionist, and he mm. shows Stephen how to seamlessly change reels. And and he and he just talks about his love of cinema. And these are fantastic little moments. And maybe just, that was just enough. Just do those. Yeah, yeah just that was do those. Enough. That is and the keep issue. the national but front no, out of it. No, we have to have issues about loneliness. We have to have an, an exploration of mental health. We have to have an exploration of racism with the most polite and tidy riot you've ever mm. seen. And all of these things. How uh, we are waiting for the pivot for the magic of the movies. And when you can see the structure of the film, you know you're in trouble. When you can see the architecture, right. you know that there's an issue. And Sam Mendes is far too good a filmmaker to be directing a script by Sam Mendes. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if it was somebody else's script where yeah, you said no. Yeah, maybe somebody should have like, writer's room at this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, sounds like a little bit of a disappointing start to 2023 for both of you, Ruth. Yeah, stars. Yeah, this, one was, this one was a little flat for me, even with Olivia Coleman, who was fantastic. So I gave it two and a half out of five. All right, and well, John? Three for me because of Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward. I mean, the... the you know, they both are in the stars themselves and uh, they yeah. really are superb. All right. OK, so I think we get a sense of what you what you saw there. Let us move on then to A Man Called Otto. This is based on the international bestseller A Man Called Ovi by Frederick Backman, a remake of the Oscar nominated Swedish film of the same name. A Man Called Otto stars Hanks, uh, Tom Hanks in the lead role. In fact, we spoke to Mark Forster, director, about the about the film Um Gave you the gave you the interview last night on the program, and um, this really is a feel good movie, and it's a Tom Hanks, it's a Rolls Royce for Tom Hanks, really, isn't it, it's Ruth? Made for this movie, and he's actually looking great. He's in great shape. He looks well, and he's, and he's, you know, this is this is sort of Frank Capra for now. This is about the small the small American man up against the system, who through his own innate goodness manages to come through and to bring the small community with him, and and you. Know, in a sense, you can't fault the film for its message. I find it, you know, I find myself being constantly sort of pushed towards the moment I take the hanky mm. out. You know, the, it's got this very <coughs> sentimental undertone to it. Um, you're being cued by a lot of very sentimental sort of pop music tracks of the day. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's the grump, right? He lives in this, this, this street. He's meticulous about everything he does. His morning routine is to go out and grumble about the fact that people have put the wrong cans. They put the cans into the paper recycling. And Quite right. No, absolutely. <laughs> these are very serious life issues. Yes. And he has a, a hook that he uses to take the cans out, grumblings he does. And then he finds somebody's parked where they shouldn't have parked and he gives out about that. And that cuts, keeps him going. We learn... Well... He, he, the, the film is punctuated by a number of suicide attempts. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not taking suicide lightly, but mm. the film doesn't treat it as a crisis. But the suicide, the suicide attempts are because he lost his wife not long ago and he wants to join her in, in yeah. the next life. And so each of the suicide attempts provides a punctuation mark in the film because each time he's about to try to commit suicide, something happens to distract him on the street. He has to go out to sort it out, yeah. and then he comes back and he sees another reason to live. Yeah, and um, the, the, one of the big reasons uh, for him to live is the arrival on, on this little closed-in area of a, a woman called Marisol, Marisol. played by Marianne Trevino, and her and her, she and her family arrive, and, and they're, they're kind of a, a disaster in some ways. They're messy, they're noisy, all of the rest of it. But he helps them park the car, and then she comes over to, to say hello and to say thanks. We wanted to properly introduce ourselves because, you know, we're going to be neighbours and everything, so... So... Okay. Okay. Bye. 
Are you always this unfriendly? I'm not unfriendly. Okay, you're not. No, 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 no. You're not unfriendly. Every word you say is like a warm cuddle. Yeah, so she's a good <laughs> she certainly she's, is. She's this a good is, ethic and she comes bringing good ethnic food to warm his heart. Yeah, why wouldn't you want your... Because she, she's a wonderful dish every time she arrives at the door. Mariana She's, fant- she's actually fantastic. She's a fantastic mm. performer, Mariana Trevino. Yeah, Mark she, Foster was very positive about oh, her. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, she... I mean, if it hadn't been for her... I mean, her versus... Not her, but her with Tom Hanks carries the film mm. because otherwise it really is. There's so little to it. Um, and, and I suppose one of the things that I found really lacking in it is that... Although he's grumpy, although he lives in the past, he's a very modern man. And mm. so, in fact, he comes around very, very quickly to having these uh, this this young family with, with their ethnic children, their yeah. food and their ethnic sort of disorder across the road. And he tells her how much he admires her for the journey he's, she's made um, to the United mm. States. And then on another occasion, it's a series of encounters. Another encounter is with um, a young trans man. Um, who his wife has taught at school and he, the young trans man remembers yeah. how good his wife was to him. He has no prejudices at all. Yeah, he immediately very... embraces the trans Although man. Although you get a sense that that has to do with the fact that it's a connection to his, connects... his wife as well. His, his, uh, Tom Hanks' son, Truman, yes, plays, plays the young, the Tom, young Hanks. Tom Hanks. And you know, when I saw it, I thought, well, he doesn't look very like Tom Hanks. What are you doing? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, actually, yeah, OK, I get that one. Um, uh, he's very good. Uh, yeah, and yeah he very good. He doesn't want to be an actor. He wants to work behind the cameras. Oh, uh, no, he's very He's got a real photogenic face, and he's got these—he's got he's, very compelling eyes. Yeah. Um, so uh, look now, I find, and I admitted it last night to Mark Foster as well. I did—I I had the hanky out, and oh, I got a few laughs as well. Yeah, you know, it's an easy film to watch. It really is. It's very innocuous. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to remember it a couple of hours after you've seen it. But if you're happy to have the hankies, you know, and, you're, <laughs> and, and Tom Hanks is—he's Mr. America still. You know, he's all—he's all, the all-good American guy. Um, there are many good things about I just found myself being too nudged okay. too nudged yeah, yeah, it was a little it is a little bit of manipulative you one would have to admit that but stars then what are so you saying I, overall I, get, I gave it three which is which is probably about the sort of Tom Hanks you know reluctance to be nice about anything <laughs> attitude but I, yeah it wasn't quite for me though I think other people will really enjoy it alright ok let us move on then to the pale blue eye uh, a mystery thriller set in West Point Military Academy in 1830 John and this uh, the body of a cadet has been found and retired detective Augustus Lander is brought in to investigate. Tell us about Lander and who arrives to help him, which I just love this well, this, is, touch. This, is what I, this is what struck my uh, took my attention immediately when I saw the, the lineup that's in the film is that uh, and it's a really gutsy move. I mean mm. you've got a, a gothic detective thriller uh, set in the 1830s and uh, as based on on the, on the novel by Louis Bayard, he inserts Edgar Allan Poe as a character. And and you'd think immediately this is going to be some kind of meta-pretentiousness, some kind of reflexive... And it's not at all. He fits like a key in a lock. He fits absolutely Mm. perfectly into the story. Uh, You're in the snow-blasted woods of upstate New York in the 1830s, just outside the West Point Military Academy, which is fairly new and already under threat from Washington. Uh, And... um, Young Poe is a recruit, uh, a raw recruit, and he's not much of a soldier. Uh, he's more interested in poetry, and it, oh, he's, he really only comes alive when somebody yeah. turns up dead. Yeah. And not only does one of his messmates turn up dead, but he's had his heart removed from his chest. <laughs> we haven't explained who Landor is, however, who's a vital part of the equation. Landor well. comes in then. He's a f- retired New York police detective. 
and he's hired by Timothy Spall's top brass. Yeah, and, and uh, Simon McBurney. Christian, yeah, and Christian Bale is playing. And he's Landor. played by Christian Bale, who's also producing the film. And uh, Gus Landor is a widower, recent widower, a former alcoholic who's actively trying to become another alcoholic. Keep keep on going mm. with his alcoholism, and he's gruff and uh, remote and strange. And uh, he himself and Poe hit it off. <laughs> they they get along like a house on fire because Poe is this young guy who's interested in the occult and he's in, interested in in poetry and he's interested in romance and he's got these kind of yeah. strange notions. Yeah. Where Landor is, you know, just trying to get a job and get paid, and yeah. he's brought in to solve the mystery. And the two of them are starting on this progress uh, until another kid turns up dead and then another kid turns yeah, up dead. Keeps, they keep and finding more and more They keep corpses. finding more and more of these corpses, yeah. yeah. Let, let's have a listen to the scene where uh, Edgar Allan Poe, played by Harry Melling, who you'll remember from the Harry, Harry Potter Potters, movies, yeah. movies, obviously. He introduces himself to Augustus Lander, played by Christian Bale, and they're, they're just setting out on their kind of dual murder investigations here. Oh, pardon are you Augustus Landor? <coughs> I am. Unless I'm mistake, you've been tasked with solving the mystery surrounding Leroy Fry. That's so. What might I do for you? It is incumbent upon me and the honour of this institution to divulge some of the conclusions which I have reached. Conclusions? Regarding the late Mr. Fry. I'd be most interested. The man you're looking for is a poet. There we go. That's uh, Harry Melling playing Edgar Allan Poe and Christian Bale as Augustus Lander. I, 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 just, I, I mentioned uh, Toby Jones. Timothy Spall is in here as well yeah, as, as the, the yeah. Colonel Simon McBurney. Um, and several others. A lot of British Gillian actors. Gillian Anderson. Gillian yeah. Anderson. A lot of British actors in an American movie. All playing Americans. All playing Americans, yeah. I, that's, the, that's, uh, that's kind of par for the course, I think, when they, when they go to 1830. You have to have a... You know, they're still just in the days of post-colonial. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, that's that kind of clipped... Uh, you know, sensibility is what they're aiming for. Yeah. They're, they're, but that we're not talking about authenticity here, Sean. We're not no. talking about historical it is accuracy. It is gothic. It is it is a macabre kind of crepuscular kind of film. It looks gorgeous. It's well directed. It's well acted. Yeah, directed um, by Scott Cooper. Scott but Cooper. Yeah, John, working John, for his third time with yeah. Christian Bale. And I, what is this? I've given out about two hour movies at the moment. Yeah, I know. This they is do two hours long. long. Yeah, it, it, it just, just tends to drag a little bit. It just sags in the middle. You think well, you don't mind that if the pace is mm. right, if the tension is right. But here it, it doesn't ratchet in the way that yeah. you expect it to do uh, when they're trying to solve the initial mystery. But then there is another mystery buried under that, which is the mystery of Landor himself. Who is this guy? Why is he here in the middle of nowhere? Why is he taking a job like this? What What's going on? And I think Bale is really good at that kind of duality that where he's investigating one story and going in one direction mm. uh, but t dragging our attention in uh, another direction entirely and he's really good at that and you know the grip there is a grip here in the film and that's to me, anyway, it was the Bale story that I was yeah, more gripped by, it, it rather than the kind of grand guignol, this kind of yeah. thing that they're, this kind of, I mean, it does get a bit absurd, uh, 
uh, the yeah. main plot, but the secondary yeah. plot, you know, held my attention the whole way through. Yeah, because it's in the middle when that main plot is kind of at the at its height, and you're thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. But yeah. then it goes back <laughs> yeah, to no, the Christian Bale bit, and you exactly, go, you know, this you, is interesting. Yeah, this is yeah. much more interesting. Yeah, yeah. so you can cut the he's got that. He's, he's, I mean, he's a superb yeah. actor, and he's got that ability to to hold your attention. And star John, this three, three. three. I mean, and it's it, not a great movie, but it's not a bad one either. And it's yeah. on Netflix, so you can watch it. Yeah, at it's home. In, in cinemas. Uh, it's been there since uh, just before Christmas, but yeah. it's on Netflix from tomorrow. In fact, I, and yeah, watching it at home, I, I shouldn't be saying that about cinema, but watching it at home is it was if you don't want the whole night out, you can you can give your two hours over at home a lot exactly, easier. Yeah. Yeah. Let us move on then to film number four this evening. This is Till. We also spoke about this on the on the program last night. Um, this is the true story of the brutal murder of fourteen-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955. His mother vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. It is an extraordinary story, uh, Ruth. Yes, it's one that I think perhaps we are, we are less familiar with, but mm. if you've had an, an American education, this is absolutely embedded in the American story of, of black in, of injustices to black people. It's one of the uh, the original stories, and it's an absolutely horrific story. Um, it's been it's been filmed before. There's been a TV miniseries about mm. it, so it's not the first time it's reached the screen. It it is a, it is. I mean, again, we're talking about one of the very long movies. It's a very very serious movie. This is a movie. It starts out quite lightly uh, with um, Mamie Till, so Emmett's mum. And him, they're in Chicago. Danielle Deadweiler. Yeah, and she's fantastic. And she's absolutely beautiful. She's the most glamorous black woman. And they live a sophisticated modern life in Chicago. And he's her only child, her husband having died on active service in World War II. And they they have fun, they dance together, but he he is going to go and visit the family in Mississippi. And let's have a listen to, the, this is the advice that this black mother must give to her son as he's heading down to Jim Crow South, let's face it, that's where he's heading and he's heading into dangerous territory. This is her advice to him. All right, now you're going to miss your train when you get down there. Oh, not again, Mama. I've already been to Mississippi. Only one time before and you started a fight with another little boy. He was picking on me. You're in the right to stand up for yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Oh, be small down there. That's Danielle Deadweiler and Jalen Hall as mother and daughter in Intel. Be, be small down there. Mother and son, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, 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 they be small down I know, there. It's, it's, it's horrendous, and, and of course, you know, right from the beginning, we know this is not going to happen. Even yeah. if you don't know the story, the film is, you know, it's letting you know carefully that this is this bumptious young man is not going to be small. Mm. And so, sh- sure enough, very soon after he arrives, he's been cotton picking with the cousins. He's not great, and he's a city boy, and he's not yeah. really interested in any of that. So they go and they sit outside a small convenience store uh, near the, the cousins' home, and he he goes in to order some candy from the the woman behind the counter and he sweet talks her and she's white and this is absolutely taboo 
I know this is this is not a fiction that we're talking about. Well, this, this is, is a true life. story. This is, yeah. a, this, is a, this is real life. The, uh, the woman in question is called Carolyn Bryant, and she's she's played by Haley Bennett in the film. And at the time, I don't think we even quite realise mm. the seriousness of what the line he's just crossed mm. by doing that. And he's admiring her. He says she's so beautiful; she looks like a film star. And he flashes a picture of a film star from his wallet to her. The cousins are horrified because they realise they live they there. They realise um, what he's done. They push him off. They they bring him home and just for a while they think maybe he's got away with it. Maybe she hasn't reported him, but she has. And the next thing is the white vigilante Ku Klux Klan arrive on the doorstep. They haul out um, Emmett and he's and he. we just hear the sounds of him being beaten up. We don't see anything, but we, we learn very, very swiftly afterwards that he's been tortured, murdered and his body's been dumped in the Mississippi. And interesting that we just hear... The beating up, yes, we it's don't very see important. it because because it's what the mother does subsequent to his death that is vital t- to history, really. No, absolutely, and it's also very important that the film doesn't personify the killers. Yeah. That, that 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 it's not about them; mm. it's about the mother. And so her decision, which is the, as you say, this is the the really important one, is that she will display her son's body in a cas- in an open casket, and everybody will come and see what has happened and see what she calls the stench of racism off it because the body is decomposed and she calls this the stench of racism and so the body is, this beautiful boy has been utterly mutilated he's, he's bloated, his, his face has been beaten but she dresses him in his best clothes and she puts him on display and all the population file past and this becomes a national news story mm. and this is what pushes her over then into becoming politically engaged with the NAACP which which she does, which she is for the rest of her life. And but it was a very important photograph in terms of that whole period and the civil rights movement. Absolutely, it really, it really was and the fact that she had the bravery to step forward and make it a national mm. story. And then the other really important thing is she decides that she will take the um, alleged perpetrators to court and there will be a court yeah. case that everybody knows that the result is predetermined because she will never get justice mm. in, in a white world. Uh, Danielle Deadweiler as Mamie. She's fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, because, uh, was she nominated? She was, wasn't was nominated for the Golden Globes and I think there was a bit of a... Yeah, I think there was a bit of a, a thing felt, about it. I mean, she, she was snubbed. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I don't see why she wasn't because she really puts her heart into this film. This, mm. is, a, this is a film that is so dripping with sincerity. And I, I, you know, it really is a sincere film there's there's almost no levity to it and it really pulls is that a problem in a sense it probably is I mean I you know I think you can't but admire it yeah um there's a, it's really hard to make a film like that that isn't preachy and that isn't a history lesson and that engages you yeah that engages you because you don't want to exploit the inherent no, drama absolutely either absolutely not it's, it's a it's a re- this mm. is a really hard film to make and and you know full marks to you know you uh, Chuku for making it because you know, many other people would not have touched this story. Uh, outside of the, the central performances from Danielle De- De- Deadweiler and Jalen Hall, the Whippy Goldberg is in Whippy there. Whippy Goldberg is the mother. And in fact, she's the one who, it's actually on her advice that he goes down to stay yeah. at the cousin, so she has to take the response. She's great. I mean, they're really cameos. They're re- you know, this yeah. is all about Danielle Deadweiler and, and that role and, 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 and the last son. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a man who, who she's dating. And all these, they don't really... Feature. This is a very much a film about one yeah. woman and her mission. Mm. Uh, and uh, finally, then uh, uh, stars, please. Yeah. Oh, four. I gave it four. I mean, it's it's not. But you couldn't give it less than four. You know, yeah. because of its intent. It's too important. To yeah, film. too important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Finally, John, let's move on to Alcaris. Then, um, 
we're in <laughs> we're meeting the Sole clan here, a yeah. family of peach farmers, as they found out that the land that they have cultivated for generations is about to be sold. Yeah, the to- film opens, yeah, with that with granddad looking for the deed to the <laughs> land. Uh, and you think here, well, what kind of territory are we in here at all? Because you know, the kids are running around, everybody's frantic. Where's the piece of paper? We where is it? Where is it? Of course there is no piece of paper. The land was agreed over a handshake by his grandfather, you know, a hundred years previous. And uh, they're about to be evicted by property yeah. developers who want to put in a solar farm, uh, you know, solar panels, uh, you know, acres and acres of solar panels. They want to dig out the peach trees, this massive orchard uh, that they've farmed for generations. And we're hoping to pass on to the generations to come in the family. Uh, and that's all going to be dug out and they're going to stick in solar panels. And as this, as this film started, I, I thought, all right, we're going to have the traditional small family up against the big, big uh, corporation. Big corporation. Yeah. Operation, that's you never see the corporation. You see yeah. a digger. There's yeah. a digger. And that's you kind of see a bit of solar panel stuff later on, exactly, later on yeah, in the film. Exactly. But it becomes something else. It almost, for me, became like a kind of a fly-on-the-wall documentary Ken Loach-style movie. Absolutely. It's very ethnographic. And this is uh, Carla Simone. And this is only her second feature. Uh, and she's a, a young woman, a young filmmaker from that region, which is about 150 kilometres inland from Barcelona. It's in, in Catalonia. Mm. And uh, she won the uh, Golden Bear at the Ber- Berlinale for this film. Only the first ever Catalan film to do so. And it's uh, her textures. are uh, You know, sometimes you'll hear people like Ruth Barton talk about textures in cinema. You know what I mean? Pretentious uh, types. Pre- Pretentious times. No, I didn't say that. But uh, it, this is a film that is composed almost entirely of textures. It's not only in the characters, the kids, the middle-aged people, uh, their parents, the elderly people, the relationships between them, brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law. It's a huge unit, uh, a huge yeah. family unit. But it's in the dust and the dirt of the soil. It's in the trees. It's in the peaches. It's in the sunlight. She captures all of that extraordinarily well. Yeah, it's in, and not only that, but it's in the past and it's in the future because the kids are practicing their hip-hop dances because yeah. they want to get into a harvest festival. Uh, they want to be in a part of a talent show. And, you know, it's m- the the future and the past. Majority all rubbing up against it. Exactly. Because you have the, the, the several generations of the family and there's one big dinner scene where they're all outside eating dinner. I don't know how um, th- th- she shot this particular <laughs> scene because there are about 17 conversations, as happens at a dinner table, exactly. going on at the same time. And, and sometimes it all calms down and they're all talking about one thing. But it's, it, it, it feels improvised. It's beautifully it feels done. documentary. Beautifully it's, done. And these are all non-professional actors. They're all from again, the Ken area. Again, Ken Loach style. Ken Loach thing. style, yeah. exactly. But the, they're complete non-professionals. None of them have ever, ever acted before. They're all from the region. They're, they, the, the film, has, to get into more pretension, this kind of wine talk you hear about terroir when people talk about wine. And this film has a terroir. It literally has a kind of a savour that comes from the land itself. Mm. And it's really interesting to watch. Yes, we're not there are no surprises here yeah. in terms of the plot of the story what is very surprising about it is how authentic it feels all the way through every element of it feels absolutely authentic and the grandfather to watching the characters they and sing the people, a song yeah. about the land and you can see him welling up with tears it's, it's beautiful it's stuff it's really to watch. affecting yeah. stuff yeah, yeah really affecting this and one you will need but the hanky, don't but expect the huge drama yeah. because it's not about that it's a, it's a li- even though a family's livelihood is at stake 
But instead, it's focused on that everyday world that each of these people inhabit. And what in other hands might become that big grand battle, uh, she's content to leave it small and to leave it uh, intimate. And yeah. I, I think that's a masterful touch. Yeah. All right. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Going to do stars, well in the four stars four, for me. Alcaraz. Yeah, Alcaraz, the title of that. So five films for your delectation on the first on the first Thursday in in January. Thanks to Ruth Barton and John McGuire for the thoughts on all of those. The ever-adventurous RT Concert Orchestra is gearing up for another musical challenge later this month on January the 26th to be exact. Once again, the challenge comes courtesy of conductor, arranger and band leader Guy Barker. Guy was last with us when he led the orchestra through a programme of music that featured his full orchestral arrangement of the Miles Davis legendary A Kind of Blue album alongside his own arrangements of tunes by the equally legendary Charles Mingus. This time, Guy is back with a new take on Charles Mingus where he explores the artists who inspired Mingus himself jazz greats like Duke Ellington Jelly Roll Martin and others Guy Barker joins me now on the line the the competition that I'm going to do while we're talking at some point along the way Guy is for this concert on the 26th and in fact if people listen carefully they might even hear the answer in some of our conversation but we'll come to that we'll come to that we'll come to that shortly what um, sent you off? I'm guessing that that hugely successful concert that we spoke about, is it 12 or 18? Well, I can't remember how long ago it is now at this point. I guess that was part of what sent you off on this exploration of Mingus and Duke Ellington, etc. Guy? Well, yes, somebody did say, you know, what are you going to do next after doing the Miles Davis kind of blue? Uh, because there was also another... Um, hours worth of music which we didn't play where I orchestrated all Miles' uh, material from the 60s uh, mostly to do with the that fabulous quintet he had with Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock um, but then it, it it became a, a kind of thing in my head. I just said, it's got to be Mingus because uh, ever since I first heard him on a radio program on Humphrey Littleton's radio program, there was a, a track called Don't Be Afraid, The Clown's Afraid Too. And I'd never heard anything mm. like it. And I just loved, loved his music. I loved everything about every album he made, um, the compositions, the, the feeling, the, you know, the, everything about it. And, uh, it became a thing that I just said, okay, it's got to be Minga. So I started work on that. And in the end, it became a co-commission between the RTE and the BBC. And mm. we performed that at the beginning of last year. And then we, rec- uh, we also did a version of it in London. Um, but and we're actually repeating uh, that program <coughs> um, in a couple of weeks' time uh, with Alan Harris joining us uh, doing the Mingus suite. But for the first half, um, I thought we had to do something new. And uh, the idea was to look at the, the people that inspired Mingus right. and the guy that inspired him and, you know, yeah, was was his hero, I guess, was Duke Ellington. Right. So um, now I'll so now I'll throw in my question for people who because I I already want to go to the concert on the basis of what you've just told me. So okay. I'm sure the <laughs> listeners will feel the same. Uh, you can win a pair of tickets to Guy Barker, uh, Mingus and Ellington concert at the National Concert Hall with the RT Concert Orchestra. The concert takes place on Thursday, the 26th of January. There is also an overnight stay for two in a deluxe room at the Four 
four-star Ivy Garden Hotel in Dublin at just a stone's throw away from the concert hall. rte.ie forward slash co for full details on the concert and info and tickets and ivygardenhotel.ie for details on the hotel. So if you want to be in with the chance of winning the prize, uh, you've got to answer the following question. Text your name and the answer to 51551 and we'll announce the winner before the end of tonight's programme. You're not to answer this now, Guy Barker, because I know okay. you know, I know you know the answer. What train did Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn make famous? Uh, so give us your answer to that on 51551. And if you don't know, don't go Googling. Stay listening to Guy Barker, because I'm sure we'll have to mention that somewhere along the way, that particular train. Uh, so let's go go to the Charles Mingus story then, if we could, Guy. And yes, I know that Duke Ellington is, is a hugely important influence, but you start, you bring us right back in fact, to Jelly Roll Morton, the, the ragtime pianist in the early part of the 20th century. Tell us a little bit about how you feel that, that, that Jelly Roll Morton, first of all, who he was and what he did in terms of jazz and, and well, why he was so important to Mingus. Well, he, Jelly Roll Morton was, was the guy who claimed to have invented jazz, which was uh, kind of, you know, there were an awful lot Big of claim. other people involved. <laughs> but yeah, he was quite a guy. But... Um, he was an incredible pianist and one of jazz's first great composers, I think. And um, there's, yeah, there's there's an amazing feeling to his music. And if you look at a lot of, um, I discovered like by looking at uh, compositions mm. by Charles Mingus, and one of them is called My Jelly Roll Soul, and there's another one that's just called Jelly Roll, and there's a kind of a thing in there. There's a there's there's a deep kind of respect and acknowledgement of this guy that was right at the beginning of the creation yeah. of this music. So um, I felt that that should uh, that should yeah. be um, you know I should give a nod to that yeah. as well. well. Yeah, and so. Yeah, go I'm going ahead. to I'm going Sorry. to listen to a little bit of Jelly Roll now, and we're going to hear him. Actually, we're going to hear him playing a bit of the Maple Leaf Rag. I think lots of people will recognise this tune, and it's one of the pieces that you're doing on the evening. But we're going to hear him playing it in two different styles. Actually, first quite fast, then his own voice, kind of talking about the different temp tempies that he uses uh, along the way. So here is a, a little bit of the Maple Leaf Rag to start out. And I played it in different in different tempo, and it's on the version of my creation of jazz music. In fact, I changed every style to mine. So there's uh, Jelly Roll Martin with a quite a, I wouldn't say sedate, but certainly slowed down. There's a bit that he plays just before that where he's going at a, a, a quite a lick indeed. And then he says, ah, no, 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 I like to slow it down in different places. Which tempo have you chosen for the orchestration guy? Well, the, the that comes from a, um, a, a series of recordings that were made in the 30s where he was being interviewed and he was talking about how m music and ragtime, how it changed from each city like i think prior to that he plays the st louis version of it but he's more or less saying then when it arrived in new orleans i played it and i played it like this and 
I was played that recording by our one of our guest soloists, Giacomo Smith, who's an mm. incredible musician, uh, wonderful clarinet player and saxophone player. And he played me that recording. And I've just remembered thinking the feel of it is so different. And it's Scott Joplin's tune, but it yeah. becomes completely Jelly Roll Morton. <laughs> and so at that point, I thought, what would it be like to orchestrate that piece. And I was talking to a, a, a great friend of mine who's a wonderful musician who I work with quite a lot called Alan Prosser. And he's he's got an amazing ear. And I, I played him that recording. And about two weeks later, um, on my computer came a, a message from him and he transcribed wow. every note that Jelly Roll Morton played on that recording. So now I had Jelly Roll's music in front of me then i just thought i've got to accept this challenge i've got to orchestrate well, it that's so it, I, it, yeah. it, it's interesting that you say that you got every note tra uh, transcribed for you like that and what a nice gift to get because you know when you listen to those ragtime tunes sometimes played on piano i mean somebody had me playing the piano only has 10 fingers so 10 yes. notes maybe they can hit two notes at the one time but possibly not but you know but you're talking an awful lot goes on in those piano pieces you know we often see them played on those automatic barrel pianos where I suppose you could have more than 10 notes at the one time if you wanted yes. but they're very full textures was it easy to to move from that very full texture then did you have lots to put on to the band and onto the orchestra well, for this particular piece, I just used the big band. There are mm. no strings on that. I, I basically used the four trumpets, four trombones, uh, or three trombones, tuba, five saxes. Well, in this case, it's four saxes and a clarinet, and piano, bass, and drums. And it's, I found that it when, what I had to do was start on on the outside, if you like, the top and the bottom, the melodic line that's right at the top and the bass line. And I first dealt with that and, you know, try to get the feeling right. And then also uh, do a little bit of editing, you know, to make mm. it possible to play because, it, you know, it, that melody and the, the almost like the brass section parts that he's playing in his right hand, that goes all the way through it. You know, you, you, you're going to kill your trumpet section. <laughs> so so it's, it was a matter of, you know, being very careful with it and editing in it. Yeah. It took quite a, it took a long time. But and then, of course, I, I, I made a bit in the middle where I could open it up and let Giacomo take a solo. So all the brass players can get the I'm instruments sorry. off their faces and <laughs> mop up the blood, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you play this piece either directly in front of the interval so that they can rest their lips for a, few, yeah. for a little bit as well? But you give them a little break in the middle of the piece, which is very nice yeah. of you. Um, yes, well, you see, I'm a trumpet player, so yeah. I'm always very kind, you know. Yeah, Some yeah. people have noticed, they said they were playing one of my arrangements and the first trumpet player suddenly stopped playing and the third trumpet player was playing the first part because I swapped it out ah. because there was something coming up. So you have to be you have to be yeah. kind, you know. Ah, that's very <laughs> nice. So just at the point when they're thinking, I need a break soon, 
you give them a break. <laughs> anyway, let, let us let us go to to a bit of specifics on Duke Ellington. And of course, one of Duke Ellington's big hits was "Take the A Train," with uh, which was written with Billy Strayhorn. But you have uh, the upcoming program includes your arrangement of another tune associated with the Ellington Orchestra, uh, "Caravan." This isn't you know a bit like "Take the A Train," which was Billy Strayhorn, who was very much part of the the writing of that because that was the train he took to visit um, to visit Ellington when they first started to work together uh, there's, there's somebody else involved in the writing of Caravan who are we talking about here? That's Juan Tizzle who was a Puerto Rican trombone player played the valve trombone and was a very important part of the Ellington Orchestra and he wrote he actually wrote Caravan um, and Ellington recorded it and played it many many times mm. over many many years um, but I've I've included it Apart from there's the Ellington connection, but also there's a there is a Mingus connection here. In as Mingus idolised Ellington, yeah. and he felt he was actually he actually got called to play with the orchestra, and he was he was thrilled. Uh, but apparently, what happened was that Juan Tizzle criticised his playing, and and they got into a <laughs> a fight with knives and stuff. Jeepers. Uh, and um, but uh, and so but apparently I think it was Clark Terry who who spoke about it afterwards and and basically sort of said they were both at, at, at fault um, in this argument. But Ellington uh, and we we quote this in the in the yeah. concert that Ellington, you know, uh, knew that Mingus had a bit of a reputation for being a bit difficult and he was a new boy, so he was the one that had to go. But um, Mingus said that the thing was, you're getting fired by Duke Ellington, but he shook your hand and did it in such an Politely. elegant way. Yeah. You ended up resigning and almost thanking him, you know. <laughs> for giving you this um, opportunity. To everything. Yes. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to resign. Let's have a little listen to a, a little bit into Caravan, actually. This is a recording from 1937. It's such a great tune. It's just so atmospheric, isn't it? A caravan from Duke Ellington and, of course, Juan Tizzle, um, the, the writer behind it. Is, is, was, is that a, is, is that a, it was the trumpet that's doing the, the wah, wah, with the yes, wah, wah. Yeah, yeah. That kind yeah, of mute the, that um, they move off and off, off and on the, the bell of the trumpet with their hand. Yes, it's a plunger mute. And it's actually, they use a toilet plunger. <laughs> and uh, that would have been Cootie Williams, I think. I might, uh, or mm. Bubba Miley, one of those guys. But yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. And they, they put a, a little mute, uh, like a, a trumpet straight mute, but they put a small version of that in the in the bell of the trumpet first and then do the plunger over the top. And that's what gives it that kind ah. of, like a baby crying sound. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I when I first heard Cootie Williams, I couldn't believe it. You know, I just couldn't believe the sound. Well, I um, often wonder about that, you know, because... <laughs> but maybe this says more about me than it does about the real reason for the mutant trumpet. Because I wonder, you know, when they're trying to get that wah-wah sound with the, with the toilet plunger, as you call it, the plunger mute and the, a mute on the end of it, do you have to blow terribly hard when you have the mute inside dampening the sound and then this other mute on top of it dampening it further? No, 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 not really, no. You, you know, the sound is, yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't... It, it, 
you know, it's it's not quite the same as blowing open. Yeah. But but also it it you know that you're trying to get dynamics, you're trying to vary things, and so you know that especially the starting really quiet and then getting yeah. loud. Of course, you know you're you'll will be blowing using more air, but you. You don't use as much air as you think. Well, you know, what you've been very nice. What you've been very nicely <laughs> saying there, guy, is yes, the amateur will blow very hard when the mute is in there, but the professional, <laughs> yeah. the professional yeah. will know that the mute is helping me to be a little bit quieter. So let it do its job. That, that kind of thing. That kind <laughs> of thing. <laughs> now you, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Giacomo Smith, who's, who will be there, and I suppose the little clarinet solo that we heard at the beginning of that uh, section from Caravan. I suppose be, will Giacomo be playing that, or will that be within the big band itself? Well, no, he'll be play. He'll be a featured soloist on that, and the, yeah. the the arrangement of Caravan is is a is a newer arrangement that right. I've done, um, and it and it's it's the same tune, but I've written it for the whole orchestra and and given it a kind of New Orleans second line feel. Yeah. Um, and, and I can uh, see how yeah. the strings the strings would give that kind of Caravan feel that, that is that is that that desert yeah. feel that is within the the tune of the music itself. But you also yeah. the the other guest that you uh, have on the night is uh, the man who is referred to as Tony Bennett's favorite singer, Alan Harris. Yes. Alan Harris, he's a wonderful guy who I met a few years ago. There's um there's a concert I've been doing annually for the past 15 years. Uh, that's the opening night of the London Jazz Festival. And uh, we call it Jazz Voice, a century of song. And I get a 45-piece orchestra, and we have eight different vocalists. And every year, we have eight different singers, and I write two arrangements for each one. And so many different people have done it. And the whole point is it's right across the board. You know, we've had Gregory Porter and Kurt Elling. We've had Paloma Faith and Boy George. We've had, you know, Mm. Melody Gardo, uh, Dee Dee Bridgewater, loads of great vocalists from all walks of uh, all genres of music. And uh, one year, uh, Alan Harris uh, uh, turned up and I just, he sang... um, he sang an old Nat King Cole song and he just makes you melt. He's just got this beautiful voice. And so he came back and did this show twice. So I've written a few arrangements for him. And when I was starting out to get, to create this Minga centenary piece, I wanted, I knew that it was during the centenary. So everybody was going to be doing something, you know, wherever you went, there was Mingus, you know? So I thought, what can I do that's different? And so I collaborated with a great author friend of mine called Rob Ryan, who I've collaborated with a lot. And I said, I want you to, you know, let's get Alan to sing a few of the songs. Cause there are some beautiful songs that Mingus wrote. Let's do that. But let him also be a narrator and be like a kind of soloist. We're not doing, you know, not telling life stories chronologically, mm. that kind of thing. Just little aspects of his life and quotes from him and stuff like that. And Rob put a beautiful thing together and Alan was just the perfect person for it. And, uh, and yes, I'm really looking forward to working with him again. And in, in terms of what, what you're doing then uh, on the evening, some of the pieces... Am I right in saying, like, I have, I have a piece here from Mingus and Ellington called M- Money Jungle. Let's just have a listen to this, first of all, because essentially this is, this sounds just like a trio to me. Let's have a listen. It is.
Yeah, so it is just a trio that we have there, um, piano, so it's, it's, bass and drums. Yeah, so it's the, it's the one album that Mingus actually made with Ellington. Mm. The, the lineup is Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus was on bass there, and Max Roach is on drums. And so when I was trying to work out what to do in the first half, I said, I've got to go to this album somehow. And have so, you taken that piece then and extended it out for uh, a, a bigger ensemble? So, yes, that I've arranged that for Big Band. And basically what I've done is taken all the notes that Ellington played and and put them, divide that up in the band and have a soloist on top. Um, and the other tune from the album, Florette Africaine, mm. I arranged for the whole symphony orchestra because it gives you so much um, freedom, yeah. that tune. Um so, yeah, so it, it was, yeah, a, a musical adventure. Yeah, I'm just that's what it's all about. And Mingus, a lot of rock and popular music aficionados or exponents of those particular styles of music would claim Mingus as an important, as an important influence on them. They I mean, would, and, and it's, he has a way of touching people from across the board you know i know like i think i was quoted as saying all the rock and rollers love charles mingus i think it's that you know it's there's the element of the blues and it it, and sometimes i remember somebody saying that they loved the slop which means you know (laughs) some some of the ensembles and and the fact that you'd have collective improvisation but everything was under mingus's control and, and, and there's just something about it, you know, yeah, when yeah. you hear a t- tune like, you know, the blues, you know, the, the goodbye pork pie hat or something like that. You know, there's just there's something in it that can can touch you. Yeah. yeah. And Elvis Costello, Keith Richards, Charlie Watts, Joni Mitchell, people like that are the ones that who have who've actually um, pointed out. Yeah. He Mingus Mingus has been a direct influence on me. And you reckon it is that that kind of bluesy feel. It's it's so much. It's more than that. But it but that's you know that's the first thing you can grab. You know. But there's it's just such an individual voice. You know. You know when somebody's very special when you're doing a rehearsal and you say, "Can you make this sound like Mingus?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> you don't. You don't often say that about many people. You know. You 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 pick things out. There's a style and a, you know and and the composition and and the feeling. Um, that it, it it kind of encapsulates all of jazz. You know, that's why, you know, the influence of Jelly Roll Morton is there all the way through Ellington and beyond, you know. Well, listen, it, it, it sounds like a like a very exciting night uh, indeed. And Giacomo Smith on clarinet and saxophone, Alan Harris on vocalist, and of course, the uh, incredible RTE Concert Orchestra will be there as part of that. Uh, looking forward to having you back on this side of the sea and hoping that it's 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 a continuation of many further collaborations. Thanks for being with us this evening, Guy. Thank you very much. You Thank might you as well, indeed. yeah. Just before you go, you might as well tell them then, uh, rather than me tell them who. What was the famous the train that was made famous by Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington? It was it was the A train. Here you are on quite. The, uh, that's direct. Oh, the went from Harlem to where did it? I can't remember where it went to. But wherever it's, Duke it's Ellington lived, wasn't it? On the subway. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> wherever Duke Ellington lived. Oh yeah, lived. no, that yes, yeah. Well, he was on the Upper West Side. Absolutely, I think. yeah, and that's that's where the air train went, and that's what Billy Strayhorn went on the air train to visit him. Oh, I think. If you've got two seconds, I'll yeah. tell you, I was, you know, the great Kurt Elling, I was working with him in New York 
and we were going to do a recording session and we were going to put his vocal on and the studio got cancelled. And they said, oh, don't worry, the engineer's taking us to this other place. And we went into the, up the street. We were on the Upper West Side. We went into this incredibly beautiful house that had subsequently been turned into three flats, I think. But they had a studio in the basement. And, uh, and I said, wow, this is amazing. You know, does anybody else live here? And some, the engineer just looked at Kurt and said, you haven't told him about this house. And he said, well, I don't know about this house. He said, what? He said, this is Duke Ellington's house. house. On the air train we line. Standing, we were standing there. We were both couldn't believe it. You know, we were actually in his All house. All right. OK, listen, thanks a million for that, Guy, Guy Barker. And in, being in the house of Duke Ellington. And Brendan O'Brien from Whitegate in County Cork knew the take that to take the A train as well. And he is the winner of tonight's competition. Congratulations to him. Uh, that is our lot for tonight. Amadine Passadevine and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Demi Garrity was the broadcast coordinator. Kieran Dunn was on sound this evening. Tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. Back with you tomorrow night at seven o'clock. My apologies to Ray Cuddy, who's in for, for John Creedon, but I had to let Guy Parker tell that story. And Ray will be with you after the news.